This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton-wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Irina. Hi. Well, I'm looking forward to talking with you this morning. I'm looking forward to this as well. My guest is Rena Deshpande. She's also known as Rena the Poet. She's an educator, author, and artist who was raised with yoga philosophy by her parents. After teaching in the New York City public school system, she helped found an elementary school teaching master's program at New York City's Relay Graduate School of Education back in 2010. She's also a certified yoga teacher with a master's degree in neuroscience and education from Harvard, where she serves as a clinical research coordinator at Harvard Medical School, where she also designs yoga-based interventions for scientific research. She currently holds a fellowship with Harvard's Graduate School of Education, where she trains preschool principals and administrators in mindful practice. And she currently authors and illustrates a monthly yoga journal magazine column on the culture and science of yoga. And she's the author of a new children's book titled Yoga Nidra Lullaby, a book that helps children relax into sleep. And last night, as I was thinking about it, it occurred to me that could also be um, characterized as dissolving into sleep, as I was remembering back to my one experience of being led on a yoga nidra journey a few years ago, immediately before the pandemic started. So, Rena, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, thank you so much for having me in that wonderful introduction. So tell me what it was like for you growing up with your parents and what you absorbed from them and learned from them about yoga and and in particular yoga nidra, because I have been practicing many different forms of meditation and I've done hatha yoga for many years as well as other forms of yoga, but until just a few years ago, I had never even heard of yoga nidra. So I'm very curious to find out more about that. And even though I was taken on, on a journey, 
with a friend of mine a few years ago. I still don't know anything about it other than my own single direct experience of it. So I would love to hear your background with all of this, what it was like for you growing up in this kind of culture and what what you received from your parents growing up with all of that. Thank you so much for asking me about this. I, I really, you know, wanted to integrate my cultural upbringing with ways that we can practically help take care of ourselves in this world at any age. Um, and I'd be so interested to hear more about your yoga nidra experience um, because I really feel like experiencing it individually um, is the, you know, to me, it's the most important part or one of the most important parts of it. Um, and I think having some cultural background with it in that yoga is not simply right, something we practice on a mat. Um, it's not something that we need to wear stretch clothes for. It's It was part of the way that I was raised. I think that's also important cultural context um, that I get to share. I have the privilege of having grown up with yoga as a um, life philosophy, as a way of living. Um, and, you know, generations and generations before me have have had that privilege. So again, I just feel very honored that I get to share this, um, just given my my position in in where I was born. And um, I was born as an Indian born in America. And so I get to share it from those two cultural angles. So I just feel very grateful to be able to share it. Um, and I can share a bit more about Yoga Nidra. Um, basically, it's a practice that allows us to help relax and unwind in a sequential way. Um, yoga Nidra means yoga sleep or unity sleep, if we were to translate it or approximate it from Sanskrit. And it's really just a lovely way of winding down. And, and one of the things that happens in research is that it's often uh, named in English as progressive body relaxation, but I really like to contextualize it as a little different than that. Um, it is that in that you do wind down the body and mind, but you're not just focusing on the individual body. Yoga is a practice that also recognizes that our environment is part of our experience and others are part of our experience. So we connect with our environment and the senses first, and then there's a way to bring them in, which in yoga terminology is pratyahara, which is the sensory withdrawal progressively over time. So you're honoring where you are physically, and then you start to move in toward the body, the mind, the breath. Um, so it's a part of the research that I, I really like to distinguish and, and just share with people that it's really cool because it's saying, you know what, like noises might be happening and we don't want to just pretend like close your eyes and now relax the body, right? It's actually a process of honoring where you are, the sounds, the feelings, you know, touch, um, taste, all of the things that you might be feeling and then slowly coming inward. Mm hmm. Yeah. To embrace everything that's arising, not only within us, but also out from outside of us and the that kind of fractal edge between the two. And at the same time, there's a sense of separation, but it also is the opportunity to merge with it or to 
to experience that there's a kind of wholeness in that relationship between the inner and the outer. Yes. I love that wording that you said, fractal edge. It's so beautiful. Um, Exactly. Like there are these unspoken boundaries, right? And like how to move from one to the other. And these practices are not, you know, only helpful for rest or moving towards sleep because, you know, yoga nidra is also a practice where it's not necessarily only moving toward falling asleep. It can get you there. It can also get you to a place of being between wake and sleep. That's also just a rest. It's a form of meditation, really. Um, And so it's a rest of the mind. It helps you to be where you are without thinking ahead or thinking backwards. And those moments are can be brief, right? Um, but they're also very restorative when we find them. And I find yoga nidra for me is a, just a beautiful practice of a form of meditation, in my opinion. <laughs> well, I'd love to hear uh, your different experiences of yoga nidra. And because for me, I spend a lot of time in that liminal state between waking and sleeping, particularly in the morning before I get out of bed, like if I have time, which is often these days, I can stay in bed for maybe an hour or even a couple of hours and just let myself luxuriate in that in-between state and allow whatever happens to happen, whatever arises or or doesn't arise happen either way. Um, but my one yoga nidra experience was actually very different from that experience. So I would love to hear your range of experiences with it. And and I'm happy to share my one experience as well. I would love to hear that. Um, Yes, I'd be happy to. So as I share also in the book that I wrote, Yoga Nidra Lullaby, it was integrated into my childhood. My mom, actually, when I was small, uh, I, I used to be kind of a an anxious child. <laughs> and I still consider myself a person who by nature and in, in yoga, we call that prakriti, just our, our natural constitution is, is one of anxiousness. Um, I tend toward that. And uh, I think to help calm me down, my mom just organically created this lullaby herself, really. It's just a simple rhythmic repetition of helping my body relax. So it would be we used to call it eyes go to sleep. Um, And so she would just sing to each part of my body, eyes go to sleep, nose go to sleep. And she would sing it, but also kind of say it. And it wasn't about rhyming or anything, but it was just progressively winding me down little by little. Um, And I remember at the end of it, she would always give me like a whole, it felt like a body wash, just like clearing the tension from my body. And this in particular stands out to me as yoga nidra more than any other way that I perceive it is it allowed me to learn how to let go of the day um, in a way that felt not like, I think when we hear let go, it can be intimidating to some, you know, it feels like if I'm letting go of something, then what do I have left? Um, The way that, that it framed letting go of the day for me was that it was welcoming repair, um, you know, I think beautiful imagination, really, and readiness for the following day. So it actually felt like that, and to use your wonderful wording, that fractal edge of 
you know, what's the distinction between letting go and welcoming something new, but there really is that. So from childhood, I just grew up with feeling grateful (laughs) to be able to wind down. Um, And especially it's carried me through, you know, I forgot it when I was a teen, I forgot it when I was a young adult going into this like very demanding profession of being a public school teacher um, in New York City. And it was really exhausting. And I forgot it. I forgot how to do it. And then it was only until I, I pushed myself over the edge of not being able to wind my body down. I mean, my body was honestly physically reacting in ways that I just I was unable to control well. And it was when I came back to these practices by happenstance, actually, that I, I remembered the value of what I had been given. And so that's how I I remember it the most from my childhood. <laughs> yeah, I, I went to elementary school in New York City, so I can relate to oh. how, how overwhelming that experience can be. And growing up in in our culture, this culture here, it, it seems almost impossible to not experience anxiety to at least some degree in our lives. Oh, I'd so agree with that, you know, and I I feel like no matter who I'm talking with and just talking with you now about it and anyone, anyone I run into, I find that we're, you know, so many of us, we just weren't prepared to be in this kind of world where there's demands, there's expectations of systems um, and things that we do, like going to school, like getting the job, right? Those things existed. And then we have all of these new platforms of connection and technology all at once and nothing necessarily gave um meaning we we just added more things to our plate and other things were not necessarily removed so there's you know 17 ways we can communicate on our smartphones and our palms of our hand um and it's just i feel like everyone that i speak to um and i don't mean to generalize but i really mean that feels like there's just a lot that we're managing right now. It's overwhelming. Right. And what you were saying about letting go being synonymous with with allowing things to be, as opposed to this notion of eliminating something or pushing something away, that letting go is is a is a different kind of um relational experience with the world. Totally agree. Mm-hmm. So getting back to Yoga Nidra, um, I'm fascinated with with different aspects of consciousness or different experiences of awareness and consciousness. And when I was led through it, it was actually this person that I was collaborating with some other things, and they wanted to do a, a recording of a yoga nidra journey. So I said, oh, I would love to volunteer to be your guinea pig for that. So they led me on this long very in-depth journey where you know it began with relaxing each part of my body and sinking into that and I was just lying on a, a thinly carpeted floor with the lights turned down and I don't remember everything about it but I remember being taken on a, a journey through a landscape to a lake and then to the edge of the lake and then on some level, entering the lake and dissolving into the lake. And I actually had this visceral experience of dissolving into the lake, like completely dissolving 
into the lake, but I was also doing my, my best to not fall asleep, to not lose consciousness. And wow. And I somehow managed to do that. It felt like it was a real challenge. I was like right on that edge of, I could go over into falling asleep, but I, I did my best not to fall asleep. So I had this simultaneous experience of completely dissolving into the lake and yet not, not losing consciousness. And um, that was my one experience of it. And it was, it was quite wonderful in a very subtle kind of way. That sounds amazing. And I would say, you know, typically is is that hope right is that we're finding that place that and I, I love that we're that word edge is continuously coming up that's it's so cool to hear because that is really what it is it's it's coming into a place of even being able to recognize that edge between sleep and wake um and I think people have different takes on it you know whether you need to maintain in that place or whether you can allow yourself to fall asleep um, it's just a very, it's a great place to be able to lead yourself. And it, I mean, to to have the imagery of a lake, this is where I think it's, you know, wonderful to honor the cultural tradition and the roots of where these practices come from. Um, and also the evolution of ways that we can visualize and, you know, lake visualization, water visualization is integral to how yoga is often taught, right? Like waves of the mind, stilling of the mind, um, the ripples. We have words like vritti that indicate like, you know, thoughts and and anxieties. Um, so it's it's really amazing to hear this adaptation of a lake as an image and how you can imagine yourself being both the lake and the observer of the lake in one one moment is is amazing. Yeah. And, you know, that, that experience of being on the edge and often we'll, we'll go over the edge into sleep. And even when we're trying not to, um, I've had many times where I've been meditating and I was kind of tired. And so it's like the body probably naturally wants to go into sleep while we may have another intention and the body usually wins. Um, yes. <laughs> So there's a there's a whole range of of experiences that we have in these realms, and we like to imagine that we have control over these things. But I think as we get more and more experience, we we come to realize that we don't really have nearly as much control over things as we we like to to imagine or think. Yes, and I I think it's. It's good to have intention. And again, different people have different takes on it. But I also find that it's also listening to what the body needs, right? And um, should it we fall asleep with it, it might be that we need that nice rest. And it's a great stepping stone toward that rest. Um, and I think especially, you know, thinking about this for children, um, I wrote this and I illustrated this children's picture book, Yoga Nidra Lullaby, to help them towards sleep. Um, it's not necessarily only to stay in a, a state of in-between, but it is also helpful to have a way to wind down with children, whether it's your own child, um, whether you're an adult and reading it too, honestly. Um, I don't have children of my own, but I've been a, 
a teacher for almost two decades, a teacher of teachers as well, as you mentioned. And it, it is important to help give steps. And I think that's one of the benefits of these practices. And um, like you mentioned, there's visualization that's involved that's gentle. Um, and ideally, we're not resisting as much as possible while we're practicing yoga nidra. So practicing it with maybe an intention and also allowing what it is, knowing that it's a process and each time it might be a little bit different. And I would imagine that if you don't talk about bringing an intention to it with somebody initially, that it can allow things, you know, the range of possibility to be wide open for whatever they naturally experience rather than having some you know, idea of what, you know, somebody else had experienced and how that can influence our intention, or at least our imagination underlying the intention. Um, so I imagine that you've done this with children, as well as just writing the book. Um, and I'm curious if you've gotten feedback from children that you've done this with about what they've experienced and if any children have perhaps had any unusual experiences to share about it? Um, so far, I wouldn't necessarily call them unusual experiences, but it, I think for the most part, um, some of them have funny ways, you know, like there might be laughing <laughs> that happens, right? In childhood, you're little less inhibited, uh, which I think is lovely, right? And I feel like what we're trying to do a lot in, in adulthood and through the rest of our lives is to reconnect with that, you know, uninhibitedness. <laughs> it's, it's So sometimes they might start laughing. They might think of something that's funny and like giggle and release. Um, so these these wonderful things actually can happen in the process. And in the book, which has been really great now, is like a new rendition of how to practice it. This book, Yoga Nidra Lullaby, evolved from an audio that I created, gosh, maybe 10, 12 years ago. Um, and then it evolved into a different story format that I put together and lots of revisions, as any author or illustrator might know. Um, and it came into this book format of a set of couplets, poetic couplets that describes something, whether it's, as we mentioned, like starting with environment or then moving in toward the body. And then the on the second page or on the right page, um, it'll be a question, a reflective question. And typically, um, I would say in yoga nidra, you're guiding someone as the teacher, you're guiding them to help them progressively relax. But this book also allows kids because kids have questions and questions can also help. So it allows kids to be able to interact in a way as they're also winding down. And I've gotten great feedback from them. They love it. Um, they, they really enjoy answering the questions. And by answering the questions out loud, it still is helping them guide themselves toward rest. So um, yeah, they, they, they've really loved it. I love getting kids reviews and photos of kids. And so it's just been, it's wonderful to see. I, I got to be in a kindergarten classroom and practice a short form of it with them. And the kindergarten kids were just, you know, they loved it and they were hugging their, you can read it with a, like a stuffed animal and enjoy it that way and practice this practice with your stuffed animal and also fall asleep together that way or rest the body that way. So 
there's lots of different takes when you're practicing with children. It's really, it's wonderful. I, I personally love it. it. It fills me with a lot of joy as I'm feeling restful. Mm, that sounds so wonderful. It's filling me with joy just imagining a room full of kids hugging their their stuffed animals and and allowing themselves to sink into these these experiences. So can you give us some examples of some of the questions that you ask them during this and and the context of the questions? I would love to do that. I actually have a copy of the book here and each page can stand alone or of course can all go together in sequence. And so I can actually start with the first page and share. So the beginning, it's if you can imagine it, there's a yellow on the left, like a yellow sunny kind of sun-filled sky that's more toward evening, so golden with some pink clouds. And on the on the right side, that orangey yellow sky kind of fades in toward a peach. So just imagining what evening sky starts to look like. And it says, the orange sun begins to sink. Skies are golden. Clouds are pink. What evening colors do you see? And in this page, what I wanted to create and the illustrations I did are, they're what I call um, hand-painted collage, sort of invented <laughs> through this process. So you're able to see the paint strokes, you're able to see the cutouts, and the, the clouds are not, you know, uniform in color. There's, you can see the strokes of yellows and blues and purples all in them because that's just real. It's what happens in the evening sky. Um, so kids can look at the pages and answer that question, what evening colors do you see? Um, they can look at the pages if they're not able to see outside of them, or they're able to look at the pages um, if it's not evening, like perhaps it's nap time in the middle of the day, and it's still just a nice question to to look at and choose colors from the pages. But I also love that children can also answer this question as they like. Um, and I'm very much about accessibility as well, right? So children who might be visually impaired, they can imagine things and they can talk about it in a different way if they want to. And it's more of a question starter. Um, so not to feel confined by the question. So um, it ends up being beautiful. Oh, there's my, I have a mindfulness bell that goes off to remind me to breathe. <laughs> to <sweat laughs> off. Uh -huh. <sighs> Which feels good to do. Mm. <laughs> I've heard so, about yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> it's really wonderful. I, I truly, and that's where I feel like yoga and mindfulness, they're integrated into the day. It's really, it helps me no matter what I'm doing, just for a second to breathe. But that, um, that explains the, the first pages and I'd be happy to share more or answer any questions about it. Yeah, I would, I would actually love for you to share more, but what, what occurred to me is um, I didn't think of this as, you know, children reading the book, but rather being guided through it with their eyes closed and just engaging their imagination during this process of relaxing their body and observing their interrelationship with the environment around them. And by asking them that question, um, I think that's it's so wonderful that while you're guiding someone, you're actually inviting them to participate, even if they don't respond you know, vocally, that they're they're engaging their imagination while they're being guided in this. And that reminds me of many years ago, I was doing some work where we were 
being led through different kinds of guided meditations. And doing that with children just seems so magical. I, it is, I mean, it feels really magical. Um, and I, I appreciate that. I, 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 your acknowledgement of the questions, um, it's, it was a very important part of the process. I mean, especially with my education background, I think, I mean, I love books. I, I love reading them aloud. I love taking them in with kids or by myself. I was always in the children's section of the library <laughs> ever since I was a kid or, even honestly, after work, I would be in the New York City Public Library, um, just constantly in the kids section. And um, the questions part felt really important to me because part of what I love to help provide is self-regulation practices, where you, by way of practicing these questions and even just hearing them, there are things that you remember to ask yourself later, right? So if a child in a couple of years is feeling overwhelmed, um, you know, the following page, the, the reflective question involves deep breathing. Um, it can be a way that they can remember, oh yes, I can, I can ask myself to breathe. And I think the asking part of it is so critical because it feels invitational to the self um, rather than a, a command or, you know, you know, an imperative format of like, please do this, or this needs to be done. It feels invitational. It feels like you are interacting with self um, and your thought process can be almost productively interrupted by asking yourself a question. Otherwise, I feel like we just continue to say thoughts, say, say, say. And if we can ask ourselves a question, it gives us a chance to respond. So I found that personally helpful. Um, and especially as an educator, it's the way that I'm always teaching, no matter what the subject. So I still teach teachers how to teach math, science, social studies. Like I'm still designing curriculum for that as well. Um, and I always make sure that the questions are there. <laughs> yeah, as you're talking about that, I, yeah, I was thinking how much I, I love that because we have a tendency to get lost in our own narratives, our own stories about everything and asking you know, being invited to ask a question or or being invited into um, curiosity by being asked a question, we can sort of sidestep our stories for a moment and open up like new doorways of possibility. Yes, I love that. I love that. Sidestep it. <laughs> doorways of possibility. And I think that's exactly what it is, is it can feel a bit open and I love what you said before, and that's very much it, right? We, when we walk into things, especially in adulthood, we've, you know, wired ourselves to think like, okay, how is this done? What's the goal of this thing? I need to make sure I do that, right? It, it becomes this thing where we we have to retrain ourselves to feel a bit more open into the experience. And so in a lot of ways, it boosts creativity to, to ask these questions that are open-ended, Um one of the reflective questions I have, like, so the couplet on one of the pages, and it progressively moves, you know, through the body down toward rest. And one of them, it says, mist is cool upon your nose, sleepy ears begin to doze. What would you whisper to someone you love? And whether or not um, a child answers it, you know, it's it's also a way to think about how 
they're interacting. So you're you're quieting the body, you're you're touching upon ears, upon nose, and you're you're thinking about the way that you're feeling, but you're also thinking about soft ways that you might interact um, with other people. So it's invitational towards self, and it's invitational in a very subtle way to help inform how we have loving relationships with other people as well. That was so lovely. Um, you know what it made me think of was the gratitude practice, that it's sort of like being invited to think about something that you are grateful for in the moment. It, it's very much, yeah, informed by all of those practices, exactly. And and compassion meditations, you know, you'll see those elements of of the practice, you know, as it as it has been culturally through the years as it's been informed by more research, you know, sharing information and, and even like making more concrete some of the practices. And then actually this question in particular, what would you whisper to someone you love? Um, a friend of mine from high school, actually, <laughs> I've known her for a long time. She ordered this book for her boys. And it was a spot in the reading that she said, like, they, they made, like, they said something funny, like silly, actually, to that question. And they ended up like, laughing and like hugging each other <laughs> in that moment about something silly. So it wasn't necessarily something, you know, very um, grateful sounding or very poetic that they shared, but it was funny. It brought them together. It made them laugh as they were getting tucked into bed, um, which again, like we want that coziness feeling. So I think in that regard with kids in this book and especially just having that freedom you know, letting laughing be a part of that beautiful process is so much fun <laughs> to be able to go to bed that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. And it, and it reminded me of many years ago being in a meditation intensive where we were all sitting in this very large meditation hall together, you know, silently in deep meditation. And it was an odd kind of offbeat energy in the room and somebody started making some funny noises and all of a sudden there were these sounds like people trying to stifle their laughter and it started erupting around the room and then all of a sudden the entire hall erupted in riotous laughter that's amazing and I'm it cathartic. was yeah it was wonderful and it lasted for like a few minutes of solid laughter, and then it slowly subsided. And then somebody went, <clears throat> and the whole room exploded in laughter again. So we went through a few cycles of that. And then the, the teacher finally, you know, tapped on the microphone and said, okay, settle down. <laughs> but but, but it, it was such a, a magical experience to, to allow ourselves to, to do that. It's, I can just imagine it. it. It feels like a classroom, like a, an elementary classroom. You know, it's funny. You can't help it. And you just let it happen. And, and what I love too about laughter is, you know, at the end of it, after a great laughing time, like a laugh attack is one of my friend calls them. You, you organically just sort of, you sigh. You're just like, Ah, right. It's a way of releasing a lot and, and having good energy out there. And it helps you to breathe. I mean, there's really so much that the body intuitively does. Um, and I, so I think it is, you know, it shouldn't necessarily be separate from the practice, but that's such a great image there. <laughs> 
And we knew that these kind of things can happen. I mean, this is part of the, the yoga tradition that thing called kriyas, they arise at times unexpectedly, and it's a very natural part of the process. Absolutely. And Kriya is so much about that cleansing and clearing and in, in natural ways. Um, and I, I, yes, I, I love that connection to it. And actually I was in, um, in India where I, my uncle was living in this um, apartment complex in Bangalore, which I learned um, every morning when I was waking up. And this was maybe a decade ago that I was experiencing this. I would hear this laughing yoga happen in the morning. I would hear people laughing outside every morning really early. And it apparently is the place where laughing yoga also originated. <laughs> so um, that's what it happened to be in that community where my uncle was living. And it is also, again, rooted in science. It's an evolution. Laughter is not necessarily written into the yoga sutra. But it's clear that it allows this incredible release, uh, allows us to let go, like you're saying, Kriya, it allows that cleansing aspect. And it's such a beautiful way to start the day. So I, I love that connection as well. Mm -hmm. And you also studied neuroscience. So I'm curious how what you've learned about neuroscience fits in with all of this. Oh, yes. Yeah. So in general, um, what I've been doing is I adapt yoga and mindfulness curriculum, and um, we use it in, in different studies. And, and I haven't um, adapted research for it in a little bit, but I, I do it on and off and sometimes contractually. And I really enjoy it because first, there's a lot more in research that's looking to acknowledge the cultural roots of these practices. Um, so, you know, you'll hear about deep breathing practices. And now we're acknowledging that a lot of these practices actually are coming from pranayama practices from yoga. So I just wanted to acknowledge that in the science world, we're not calling um, these practices necessarily science-based anymore. They're now, I love the pivot of terminology, which to me feels like yoga itself, that it's now science-supported research because these practices have existed for hundreds and thousands of years. Um, and they were orally passed down as practices and then transcribed and then you know, now we're we're studying them with a new modern Western approach um, in science, and so uh, I think it's it's incredible to be able to to see that start to happen. So, just wanted to acknowledge that part in research, um, and just the various benefits that we see. You know, there's um, one of the studies related to practicing for anyone with any amount of experience. You know, what were the physiological effects? of practicing for 10 minutes a day versus 40 minutes a day. And both show benefit. Um, you know, both can can have a positive impact on your physiological well-being. Um, yoga nidra is integral in that experience. So it's built into Shavasana practice, for example. So when we're we're resting at the end of a practice, we find that we're able to quiet the mind and body. And there's a lot of research out there to show what's called a default mode network in the brain. And so the brain is not necessarily going to stop its activity, right? That's not necessarily the goal. <laughs> 
while we're alive, right? Um, we we want we want to keep some activity, and we have what's called a default mode network. And these practices, such as yoga nidra, can help to progressively quiet the activity in the mind and the body, so that we actually can repair and restore, like we used to do as babies when we would really rest. Um, which actually in turn is a productive thing to do. So so lots of cool things <laughs> coming out in research. Yeah, I love what you were just saying about that uh, and alluding to um, restorative practice, how um, when we do some of these practices like yoga nidra or meditation, it can allow the nervous system to relax and, and go into parasympathetic mode as a break from the nearly constant sympathetic response mode that we experience in our normal day-to-day -day life out in this crazy world that we're living in. And it's interesting how science and the cutting edge of, of medicine is recognizing that we only actually heal in that parasympathetic state. It's so necessary, absolutely. And how these and how simple it can be, I think to me is what always stands out. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of deep terminology. You can read the details of things, but what always stands out to me is that things that have been as ancient and common, right? As like when we're stressed out and we say, just take a deep breath, right? But there's science to support why that helps us, right? The vagus nerve, it helps stimulate a parasympathetic response. So just by having our lungs expand, that nerve is, is touched upon, right? And it can calm down the body. Or how if we're just lying down on the back with slightly elevated legs for a little bit, it can also stimulate that parasympathetic response. And again, it's that edge point, which we were talking about earlier, why typically in a yogasana practice, yoga asana, so that asana being that physical practice of the postures, why do we usually end with a shavasana, with restoration? It's because it's that bridge, right? In order to begin again, we want the body to find rest, restoration, repair, so that we can come back. And, you know, yoga doesn't necessarily say like, don't be productive and just flow and be blissed out all the time. There's different schools of thought culturally in yoga. Um, and one of them is called, um, let me think for a second. My mind is going <laughs> elsewhere. Uh, oh, it's called Grihasta Ashrama. <laughs> so it means that Grihasta Ashrama means daily living, like that we realize, you know, we can't go all live in the mountain and bliss out and, and not be in connection with things and fast, right? It, it acknowledges that there's ways of living that involve those who are procreating, those who are working, those who are, who are creating things. And so it's acknowledging that we need to be able to repair and restore in order to do those things. So, um, yeah, I'm also just always very happy to, to dispel those, those, ways of thinking, I think, that happen in Western, um, unintentionally in Western society, <laughs> that yoga means that we're non-attached, that we just need to feel always okay and calm. It's it's actually saying that yoga is a way to help us in the daily experiences we have, um, and rest and repair is foundational to that. Yeah, I remember saying Shavasana was my favorite yoga pose. <laughs> <laughs> And, and also remembering that 
that same meditation teacher that we had that explosive laughter with um, used to tell us that after meditating to lay down in Shavasana, to allow ourselves to integrate that, that that was a very important step in the process. I love that. Exactly. The wording of that too, that it integrates what you've taken in. Right. And, and it always is so helpful to think back to, to babies, right. And their basic needs that while they're resting, they're integrating and they're actually growing. <laughs> we often, you know, start to think of rest as something passive when we're adults, but it's actually very, very important to integrate all of the things that we've taken in, keep the things that we want right. Um, the body is so, so intelligent. It, it's really like, to me, it's always going to be like magic. It's incredible what it knows how to do. And so it's it's an element of trust, right, in Shavasana, where we are saying, I'm no longer in control for a second. Like, I'm just allowing the body to do what it needs to do and giving it the space that it needs to do it, I think, is, is a practice of trust. Um, and it can be really uncomfortable for some, which is why I think practices like yoga nidra and especially beginning them at an early age is really important. So we can be comfortable in those places of quiet to allow the body, the mind to do what it needs to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And like healing in, in that state, healing is not something that we do. It's something that the body naturally does. And, and they say that also we don't learn outside of that parasympathetic state that when we're sympathetically activated, we're, we're not really in a state where we're capable of really learning that it's only when we return to that parasympathetic state that we actually can learn anything and, and integrate anything that we've um, experienced. Yes. I mean, and I, I think it's always that symbiotic, right? Relationship between wake, between sleep, the things that we're able to do while we're awake, the things that we're able to do while we sleep. And that's why I think it's just so important to, the cycle of wakefulness and sleepiness, I find, especially today, right, with the cell phones in our hands and the screens, I, I mean, I have a work computer, I have a personal computer, there's an iPad over there, I have a smartphone, I mean, the number of screens that are keeping us awake, right, and keeping the mind going, I think what's happening, um, and this is anecdotally I'm sharing, when we're sleeping, the sleeping is not feeling as restful, right? Um, or resting. When the resting is happening, it may not actually be as restful as we think. Um, and when we're awake, the wakefulness is therefore feeling a little bit sleepy. And so it feels like in either place, we're not necessarily able to to get the things that we, we really need out of those biorhythms. So the hope is things like a yoga nidra practice or this yoga nidra lullaby book for kids, like to start at a young age is that so when we're resting, it's really resting. And that means that when we're awake, we're really awake and we're, we're really maximizing then all the capacity that we have. So then it sounds like yoga nidra is, is based on a foundation of relaxation. And then there are other possibilities that can arise out of that. It's a beautiful way to put it. Yes. Because again, I'm so unfamiliar with yoga nidra as 
as a conceptual um, practice, you know, in contrast to all the other practices I've learned over the past many years. So, you know, that that part of my brain, that rational part of my brain is trying to wrap itself ar- around this concept, but it it sounds like it's really very, very simple. It and, really is. I think that is the beauty of it. Yeah, which reminds me of, you know, back back in the days when I was doing LSD, um, I remember when I'd be coming down and I would ask for something that I could bring back to remember, you know, something from the wisdom that I had experienced from from the journey. And I always got the same response, the same voice telling me, just relax, you know, just deeply, deeply and profoundly relax. That essentially there was nothing I needed to be concerned about in this world and that I could just, I can just relax. That's, that's the most powerful thing I can do. It's the most wise thing I can bring back with me. That, it already makes me relax just to think about that message. And I consistently, you know, like body response is something I'm very interested in connecting with emotion um, or even values, right? And it feels like trust when I hear it, right? When we're relaxing, it feels like we feel trusting and safe. And as much as we can feel like that, what what we were talking about before, right? It's that parasympathetic response, or at least not an activation of a sympathetic response. We're not activating fight, flight, or freeze if we're able to practice trust and remain as much as possible, relaxed as possible. And in that regard, we're reserving those moments of, you know, and our body again is so intelligent. We need the sympathetic responses. We need the fight, flight, freeze responses for particular circumstances. But right now we're so inundated with input, with with phone calls, with text messages, with social media, with work demands, right? With home responsibilities, with anything and everything, um, with pandemics happening, right? We have so much happening that it can be very hard to feel safe and trusting. And so these practices can help bring us down in a very concrete, as you mentioned, very simple way so that those sympathetic responses are are still reserved for those moments when we do need to call upon them. Mm-hmm. And over the years since those experiences, I have been gradually integrating the levels of wisdom in that simple instruction to just relax. It's like there, there's so many layers and deeper and deeper layers to to that realization. It makes me think of the layers of where we also want to feel relaxed, right? And it's relaxing in ourselves so that when we're interacting with others, we're allowing them to feel relaxed, right? So that the world (laughs) can feel relaxed. And, um, And I think that's also, it's just a lovely way to consider (laughs) practicing yoga nidra and, and relaxation as a generous thing to do. Um, Because when you're with someone who is relaxed, right, doesn't it inform how you might feel and doesn't it inform how you carry it elsewhere? 
So um, also in that cultural and historical yoga philosophy that we're we're not separate um, and that by doing this, we're helping ourselves. And by doing that, we are helping others, humans, animals, environment. We're, we're helping <laughs> by doing it. Yeah, that's such a beautiful thing to to realize that we we really truly do resonate with each other in in those sorts of ways. And if we can help through our own practice of relaxation and resonating on the parasympathetic level, that we can help influence or or affect the rest of the world around us in that way. And that it's actually a very meaningful contribution to the world even if it seems so insignificant from our own limited perspectives agreed in the book the at the end of the story it ends with this practice of helping kids to realize that which is it it's peace with you and peace with me peace with all the things that be so Another concept of relaxation, right, is just that feeling of peacefulness as much as possible. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's so beautiful. So beautiful. And to share that with children and to end each day with that kind of a practice with, with our children, that just sounds like such a beautiful gift to the whole world. Thank you. So you're also a poet. So I'd love to give you an opportunity to share some of your your poetry. And there's one in particular that I would love for you to share with us, and it's called Jars of Space. Oh, thank you for asking for this one. This is one that is one of my favorites, actually. (laughs) Yes, I am a poet. If you're interested, I share my poetry on Instagram. Um, And this book is also just a long form of poem, too. So... um, on Instagram, I'm Rena the Poet. And it, the Jars of Space poem came to me actually while I was on the subway, of all things, in New York. Uh, and it, it was just a pondering. And it goes like this. Um, it's one of the few I have memorized at this point. So it's, where does the sky turn into the sea and sea into land and land into me and me into sky? and sky into stars, into space we can capture in jars. I love that so much. And it really paralleled and fit so well with your Yoga Nidra lullaby, which which had the same sort of um, spacious quality to it. Thank you. I think that opportunity for space is really, really big for me. I think it's so foundational for well-being. And I appreciate the space to be able to share that poem. I haven't shared it in a little while. Um, and there's still a book in coming. I, I hand write and hand illustrate these short, you know, ink-based poems. Um, but that one, I think, in particular, helps me to feel like I can breathe and just admire the mystery of everything and you know even what we were talking about today which is like where is that edge right like the edge between the thing is you know is it there is it not there it's just it's beautiful to ponder and feel in awe (laughs) i totally agree it's one of my favorite experiences in in this whole world mine too (laughs) well it's been absolutely lovely talking with you 
It's been so wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much. Your your questions have been so invitational and thought-provoking for me too. So I really appreciate this time and opportunity. Is there another poem that you could uh, leave us with to end? Sure. I, I have a short one that also, actually, I think this one came as I was walking out of subway stairs. <laughs> it's fun that I, I you know, it's, to think of that context, right? It's it's not separate from us. Um, so this one is, it's called Fail, actually. And it's, what's it really mean to fail? Success is just a silky sail. Wind and wave, they make us brave. And strong arms, waters bail. That's it. That's a lovely image. I was feeling myself immersed in that. Oh, connection with water. That's beautiful. <laughs> I love, mm -hmm. I just love the seaside and, and being on, on the water too. <laughs> mm -hmm. So again, it's been lovely talking with you. So great talking with you. Thank you so much again for having me. And be well. Thank you so much. You too. And bye-bye. Bye-bye. Rina Deshpande is an educator, author, artist, and poet who was raised with yoga philosophy by her parents. After teaching in the New York City public school system, she helped found an elementary school teaching master's program in New York City's Relay Graduate School of Education back in 2010. Rina is also a certified yoga teacher with a master's degree in neuroscience and education from Harvard, where she also serves as a clinical research coordinator at Harvard Medical School, where she designs yoga-based interventions for scientific research. She currently holds a fellowship with Harvard's Graduate School of Education, where she trains preschool principals and administrators in mindful practice. She also currently authors and illustrates a monthly yoga journal magazine column on the culture and science of yoga, and she's the author of a new children's book titled Yoga Nidra Lullaby. You are falling deeper into the color of a dream. A voyage is about
that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Thank you.